The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Uh, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, if you will, two passages we want to look at today. Uh, Acts chapter 6, and then put your finger there and go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we have a real very special night tonight. Last week, you as a congregation affirmed those that had been uh, vetted and nominated to serve uh, the next three-year term in their role as deacons. And tonight, we have three deacons that are going to be ordained for the first time. And so at tonight's service and that deacon ordination, really, it is a very, very, very special night and a special time. Not only for us as a church congregation, but for those men, uh, along with their wives, as the men are ordained to serve as deacons. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that and, and listen this morning. Uh, Tom, I've been here. I'm not sure that we've ever had a message that really just explain what it is that God has intended for deacons as they serve in the body, the local church body. And so I thought I'd be able to pull aside this morning and we'll just open the scriptures and see what that means. Now this uh, act of ordaining deacons, setting men aside to serve uh, the Lord ultimately, but to serve the body of Christ in a local church, has its roots early on in the New Testament. That first passage that I referred to, Acts chapter 6, really is the first place that we find this ordination or this act of sitting, setting men aside. As you know, in that time, the church early in that was growing very rapidly, and the 12 apostles were there. And uh, Luke records for us in Acts chapter 6 that initial setting aside of men that would serve as deacons to serve on behalf of the body and to serve the body. And follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6, as we look at this text. Luke writes, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in numbers, disciples, uh, those that were following after Christ, like us, we are Christ followers, we're called to be Christ followers, and so that was growing there. Uh, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews, and their widows uh, that their widows were being overlooked in their daily distribution. Uh, Hellenistic Jews were those who were of a Greek origin. Uh, Jewish uh, or, or uh, Hebraic Jews were those who were bloodline Jews, and there was a conflict. How many of you know that there are occasionally conflicts within the body of Christ? And, and the conflict was there, was that there was one group of ladies, widows, who felt as though they were being neglected, that there, were, there was another group within the church that was getting more attention than they were, and so they complained about it in the daily distribution. And we take that to mean distribution of goods or, or services or food to them. And so they complained. Now, this isn't a negative complaint, I don't think. I think they were just bringing it to the attention. And so the 12, those apostles, summoned the whole company of the disciples, brought together the whole church body, those who were Christ's followers. And they said, listen, it wouldn't be right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables. Uh, these early apostles would be what would later become the second office, if you will, in the church, elders or pastors. And they said, listen, there's so much need here in the body. It's not right for us to neglect the study and the teaching of the Word of God and prayer to go and wait on tables. Now, it doesn't mean that they were above that, right? 
But there was a matter of priorities that they needed to take care of that. And if they were running around taking care of all of these different needs within the body of Christ, they would neglect that thing which is so vital to the local church body. And that is the exhortation, direction, teaching of the Word of God. And so they said, you know, as a result of this, here's what we want you to do, brothers. Uh, select from among you seven men. And I notice he directs this to the church body. He says, hey, church body, you know men among you. And, and it's your responsibility. And we're giving you this responsibility to, I guess, purview the local church body and identify seven men within the local church who meet these two qualifications as they began. And so he lays those out. He says, men, select uh, seven men who have a good reputation, number one, and who are full of the spirit and wisdom who we can appoint to this duty. In verse 4 he says, uh, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. By the way, Stephen was the first martyr of the church. You remember that? And so Stephen himself didn't just serve and wait on tables, but that great sermon that he preached there as he was shown, we know he knew the faith and was able to communicate that. And Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timor, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, J-Mo, you just botched up those names, I would ask you to try it as well. <laughs> they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and they laid hands on them. This act of laying on hands, there was nothing mystical in the sense of laying on hands. It was just a form, a way of commissioning those men as representative leaders in the body of Christ to go to that duty that God had appointed them to and had called them to and they set them apart to that. Now look at the result in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests came, uh, became obedient to the faith. That is, Jewish priests, Pharisees. And so, as a result of that, the delegation of serving in the body, we see that there was more fruit through the Word of God to bring others to Christ. And so, as we're going to ordain those men tonight, I want us to consider... A couple of aspects of this, these two main points that he makes in Acts chapter 6 of here are the initial qualifications for men that are going to be set aside to serve as deacons. Number one, they have to be men of good reputation. And number two, they have to be full of the Spirit or walking in the Spirit of God and wisdom. Those are the two qualifications. However, Paul elaborates on this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you'll turn there for me as Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor there of a local church, and he's given him instructions of appointing additional elders or pastors in the body of Christ. And then also in this office or this role of deacon, he goes into more explanation as to what should be the character qualities of these men that are appointed. So follow along as I read this passage beginning in verse 8. Uh, he says, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first, and if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Verse 11, 
their wives or women also, they too must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled. They must be self-controlled, faithful in everything. And then deacons are to be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man is a better translation there. Managing their children and their household completely, uh, competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith and ministry of of Christ. And so I want us to look at this and look at three different aspects. Two we're going to look at this morning. And then tonight as you come back for the deacon ordination, we're going to look at the last point. But the first points I want us to consider this morning uh, of those that serve in the deacon role. Number one is the character that has to be there for one who would serve as a deacon. The character as Paul outlines it. The second thing we're going to look at is the calling into that. Who does the calling And so we'll look at that more specifically. So let's uh, take a look at this. But let me make a couple of comments first, just kind of as a house cleaning note. Um, I've been in a number of churches and served in a number of churches and through my life been a member of a number of different churches in different locations. And when I became a pastor, I, I learned quickly that among other pastors, sometimes they love to crack jokes about deacons. You ever heard jokes cracked about deacons? And I didn't like that. And the reason I didn't like that was because I lived in the house of a man who served faithfully as a deacon and in my mind personified everything that Paul would lay out here that a deacon should be. And that was my father as I watched him serve as a deacon in the body of Christ. And it wasn't necessarily that my father had to be appointed and ordained as a deacon. He was, but I learned a long time ago that a deacon will always deacon whether they're recognized or not. And so I grew up in that, and I didn't like hearing the, the derogative comments oftentimes about deacons because my father was everything but that. But I came to understand that the reason that some of these derogative statements are made about deacons and those who serve in the deacon ministry is because there is an abuse or there is a misunderstanding as to the role of deacon and has God has laid it out biblically what a deacon is to be and oftentimes they become a ruling governing party and that's not what God intended for deacons to be. The very word deacon has the idea of one who is a servant. That same word that's translated in our New Testament for deacon as a a servant, one who would serve or come alongside, was used also in Greek literature in that day and prior to the time of Christ as one who would be an under-Roman in a ship. If you think of these old ships, and at the very belly of the ship would be there those individuals that would be there in the bottom rowing that ship and making that ship go along. They were in the very belly of the ship, and everything in the operation of that ship was, was rested and laid on the effectiveness and ministry, if you will, of that under-Roman. They were there serving to move those goods across the ocean or whatever. And so that's a word picture of what a deacon is to be. 
I was extremely refreshed when I became a member here, first at First Conyers, when I began to recognize that somebody in the past history of our church laid a great foundation as to how deacons are to serve in that deacon ministry and really be deacons as God has called deacons to be deacons. And so you with me, I would like to applaud whoever set that pattern in the history of our church that we have a body of men who understand their role as serving the body of Christ and not trying to lord and rule it over. Can we say thank you to the Lord for that. And so we have a very unique group and function of deacons here at First Conyers. And so I'm thankful for that. But let's first look at this first point, the character of the deacon. What is the character of a deacon? Should uh, What should it be? When you think about this, you know, men have uh, have great abilities. They, they can be uh, the best at the skill that they have, maybe in their, their workforce. They might be the, the best of the best in that field. A man may have great charisma and be able to communicate extremely effectively, and he may have great leadership skills and abilities and get a lot of people to come along in that endeavor that he's trying to lead in. But if a man is not seasoned in godly character, he will never be used God, of God greatly as a deacon in the body of Christ. To put it another way, it does not matter what a man's ability is. It does not matter what a man's skill is. It does not matter what a man's intellect is. It does not matter the man's position in the community. It does not matter his position in civil government, etc., etc., etc. If he does not have godly character, he is not fit to serve as a deacon in the body of Christ. Boy, that wasn't a big amen on that one. Character is everything. And I think as Luke was writing in Acts chapter 6, and Paul elaborates in that, we find the point that character is everything. You know, in our world today, uh, character seems to be waning, doesn't it? And it seems as though that character is not as big a deal as much as the skills that the individual has are. Well, can I propose to you that in the life of the body of Christ, it's completely opposite from what we might expect in the world. You see, I've learned a long time ago that if a person has a certain aptitude, you can teach them specific skills. You can teach them proper management procedures. You can teach them all of those things if they're able to learn. But the one thing you cannot teach, the one thing that you cannot change in a person, in a man in particular, and that is his character. You see, it requires the Holy Spirit and a willingness to be conformed to the likeness of Christ to have that character. And that's why I think Paul explicitly says character is what is so important in this. I wrote this down because I couldn't remember to say it. But the man who is right in his character will be right in his ministry. But the man who is not right in his character can never be right in his ministry. You see, character is everything. Notice in Acts chapter 6, that one of the two things, he says that the man must have a good reputation. Uh, reputation is so essential. Um, when I grew up, I, I heard, and you probably heard this as well, that well, your reputation is everything because it follows you everywhere. Now we have Facebook that identifies your reputation. And can I tell you something? It follows you for the rest of your life, right? 
of a good reputation. And why is it important for a deacon in the local body of Christ to have a good reputation, not only within the body of Christ, but also a good reputation in the community where they are as well? And that is this, because in order for a deacon to deacon, the deacon has to be trusted. You see, a deacon in the role of the ministry of the deacon oftentimes is, is privy to information that other people may not know. He's got to be trusted to be, to be a confidant with that information, not one that would go around telling everybody else in the church that person's business, right? So good reputation. And outside of the body of Christ as well, I have seen and you have seen as well men who we know that are deacons in their church, but we know they're living like a devil in the world. And folks, that's an affront to the body of Christ and it's a shame to the name of Christ. And it has an impact on that local church as well. And so a deacon must have a good reputation. Now in Timothy's, uh, excuse me, in Paul's writing, he lays these things under a good reputation that I'd like to include. Number one, he says this, that a deacon, some of your translations are different, but a deacon is not to be hypocritical. In other words, a deacon is not to have a mask, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, where there's a mask that says one thing, but beneath the mask is a completely different character. Some of your translations say, uh, instead of saying, must not be hypocritical, it says that 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 man who is serving as a deacon must not be double-tongued. And that's the idea of saying one thing to one person and then turn around and saying another thing to another. We have another name for that, and that's politician, right? (laughs) Unfortunately, unfortunately, oftentimes there's a lot of politics played in the local body of Christ. And can I tell you that that's straight from the pit of hell. Amen. Thank you. You see, a deacon has to be of such character... That they're not double-tongued, they're not hypocritical, they're not, they're not running around as a gossip would come under this as well. A deacon is one that would serve and, and be supportive of the direction and the mission and the vision of the church and not behind closed doors be talking and, and being anti to the leadership and the direction that God has placed in that local church body. You see... Words have great effect. And I found that it's a device of the enemy oftentimes in the church to take one who might be serving in this role or a man in the body of Christ who would go around and do an undermining and just laying their seeds of discourse in the body of Christ. And can I tell you, that's probably one of the most damaging things as we read Paul's letters, all of his letters. He has some very strict things to say about the tongue and unity in the body of Christ and how the enemy loves to use divisiveness. Secondly is this. He says, as far as his character, that this man must not be greedy for money. In other words, he, he, he doesn't live a life looking to try to make money through dishonest gain. And sometimes the greatest place to look at that is outside of the body and how they conduct their business matters outside of the body. The other thing is that as well, and you and I might have seen this before, but sometimes uh, people like to use the role of deacon or leadership in the church to acquire new business for their own personal gain, right? Hey, how are you? Here's my business card, right? You see, that's, that's playing on the body. It's just, look, a deacon has to have the character that 
His primary focus and person is the body of Christ and not his own gain. The third characteristic that Paul lines out in his character is that he says that that one who's going to be appointed as a deacon must be first tested. He says this about the elder, that the one who's going to be a pastor, that you don't want to lay hands on them quickly and ordain them as a pastor, especially if they're young or they're young in the Lord, because putting one in that place of position is too tempting that they might fall as a result of being placed in that. In other words, sometimes their head might get too big. They become the person that you'd like to buy them for what they're worth and sell them for what they're really worth. You understand? You understand? He says, listen, you have a responsibility as a body to to let that person be tested first. That's why we have a period of time that a person must be a member here at First Conyers before they're considered to serve as a deacon because we want to have opportunity to examine their life in all of these different areas. And so they must be tested first to to prove themselves in this. Now, the one thing I want to say about this next one where he says that his character must be blameless, Paul does not mean must be perfect, right? Is there anyone in here this morning that's perfect? Let me see your hand. No. But when he says that this individual must be blameless, it means they've got to live a life in such a way that they're not set up for blame. That, that their life would just exhibit that which is the righteousness of God in Christ. And I would say this, that where there is fault or where fault is, is, takes place in the life of an individual would be quick to acknowledge, yes, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. That attitude of continual repentance in their life. So it says a deacon must be blameless. Now notice here it, it also says, and wives as well. A couple of different ways to translate this, and I'm not going to get into that this morning, but just for the sake of our consideration for the passage this morning, that those men who are being ordained as deacons, if they are married, then there are certain character qualifications that the wife should have as well. How many of us understand that the two should become one flesh? And the wife also must have these things of character that Paul points out. He says that that she must live a reverent life. That word reverent just means simply a serious life. Serious about the things of God and serious about the ministry that God has called that husband to as a deacon and the wife along with them in that role. Now there's some very practical reasons, I think, when we look at this, why wives are necessary in that as well. Because here, men don't go visit women, right? We're not going to put ourselves in that situation where there could be any, uh, any means of accusation of any improprieties, right? Plus, it's just not wise. And so the wives serve along in that, in that role with them. It says that not only to be reverent, serious, but they're also not to be a gossip. Never seen that problem before, have we? It's family relationships. If he's married, he says he must be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. In other words, in that deacon's life, there should be no question that the number one woman in his life is his wife. 
that he's not married and yet you kind of get the idea he's trying to hit up on every other female in the body. Now, some of this may be uncomfortable for us to hear, but listen, these are the things that are very important in the role of a deacon as God has set them aside and apart. He's to lead his home responsibly. After all, same thing that Paul will point out as an elder, if he can't manage his own home, how is he going to manage the affairs in the body of Christ? Okay? Second thing that Luke lays out for us in Acts chapter 6 is not only of, of had good reputation, but secondly, he says, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. In other words, the man that we'd look for is a man who would be walking in the Spirit and Spirit-led. I think of the passage in Ephesians chapter 5 as it relates to the qualification where Paul says, listen, he shouldn't be a man that's given over to much wine. And where Paul says in Ephesians 5, listen, don't be under the control, don't be under the influence, don't be drunk by wine, but be led of the Holy Spirit of God. And so that the control in that man's life is by the Holy Spirit, that he's daily filled and walking in the Spirit of God. He lays it out here, full of the Spirit and wisdom. Some of the results of being full of Spirit and wisdom is is that that man will be a worshiping man. That, That that man will have a heart to worship God and to seek after God. Not just in corporate worship on Sunday morning, but he have a lifestyle. And by the way, that's what worship is, right? What we do here on Sunday morning is just a reflection of that as we do that corporately. But the Bible calls us to live every day of our life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. For this is your reasonable act of worship, he says. And so it's a lifestyle of worship. Now, that doesn't mean that he goes around singing with his eyes closed every day and his hands lifted up, right? But there is a laying down of his life and submission to the Lordship of Christ in his life, a life of worship. Man must be a servant, must be willing to serve, must have a heart of servitude. I can remember many times watching my dad when I was growing up. My dad did a lot of things at the church in ministry, uh, was there every week and served in a lot of different ways. But what many in the church may not have recognized was the way that I watched my dad serve throughout the week in different ways. My dad worked hard. But oftentimes after a long day, 10, 12 hours on a construction site, I would know that he'd come home quickly and go back out to go meet the needs of different individuals in the community and in the body of Christ that had need. It was not very often that when someone was sick in the body, maybe in the hospital or having surgery, my father, and I went along with my father many times to different hospitals and those kinds of things, and often he would be there before the pastor was ever able to make it. And he was a ministry to the pastor because how many of you know the pastor can't make everything? And, and God's placed in the body deacons that serve in that role. Uh, it, it's a blessing here on staff as we have rotation where we have different hospital visits and stuff to know that, boy, we, we have deacons that we know have gone there and without ever being asked. And by the way, this is whether they're serving as an active deacon or an inactive deacon. By the way, there's no such thing as an inactive deacon. It just means you don't have to come to the meetings, right? 
but our deacons serve. And that's such a blessing to know that we have that here in our body. I can remember when I was down in South Florida, we had a particular year that in 15 months' time, we had three hurricanes where I was in West Palm Beach. And if you've never been through a hurricane, you, you understand that you know the hurricane's coming, but when it gets there, it's going to be bad, right? And so everybody begins to shutter up their houses with the window shutters, whether it be plywood or you're fortunate enough to have a home that was built later and you have the corrugated steel shutters. And one of the first things that our deacons there would do, we, have a list of, we had a list of widows who were in the body. And these hurricane panels are very heavy and they're difficult to put up. And so the deacons would get together and they would go out within the body there, the church where I served, and they would put the shutters on the windows of the widows. And I would go along with them. And so one house that we went to in particular, though, when I got there to the house, and we were doing a lot of homes, trying to, trying to get them batted down so the hurricane wouldn't tear their house up. And as I entered into this dear lady's home, her two younger, middle-aged, 30-something-year-old sons were sitting on the couch and expecting the deacons to come put the shutters on. So let me make a point in this. Deacons, while there's a heart and there's a willingness to serve, they're not to usurp the role of sons and children in the other families. Deacon's ministry is not there to, as a, as a benefit or a bonus, because I tie to the church, therefore they need to, they need, I can do away with my lawn service and they'll come cut it every week, right? But they're there to serve the body in whatever way is necessary in what can be done. You see, the deacon should be a man who loves God and, and also loves his church. Is committed to the vision and the mission of that local church that they're a part of. And I would say one of the primary things for our deacons, we make it very clear that, listen, our mission is to, is to display the grace of God to all people. That's all people. Can you underline the word all? Display the grace of God to all people to win them to Christ make disciples of them who can then go and win others to Christ so to win, disciple, and send. I think of Stephen, that early example of a deacon. Stephen certainly understood and knew the gospel message and he was not afraid, afraid at all or reserved to share that. So our deacons should be on the forefront of sharing their faith and leading us as a congregation in that of making disciples who then can make other disciples. Let's look at the second aspect, the calling of the deacon. The calling of the deacon. Two aspects of this calling of the deacon. You remember in Acts chapter 6 that the apostles said, Hey, church body, you look among yourselves and, and you appoint seven men. And so it's the church, it's the local body of Christ that calls out from within those who they see as men who, who meet these character qualifications, who would serve faithfully as a deacon and then are recommended for that serving. That's why here, beginning about July, we'll ask you, hey, do you recognize some men in the body that, that serve in this way, that they're already deaconing, right? You can't take somebody who's not a deacon, appoint them a deacon and expect them to deacon. 
Do you recognize? Then, then submit that name and so that we might call men from the body. So they're called out, they're set apart from within the body of Christ. Second thing about this is that they are called out for the body of Christ. You see, it's an honor, I think, for men to serve as deacons. And it's an honor in the sense that, that, that a deacon doesn't have the idea that his name's going to be cast in lights or a building's going to be named after him because he's called out as a deacon. But it's an honor to serve in the name of Christ, his bride. Think about that for a minute. You have a bride. Now every man that's here with his wife should raise their hand when I ask this question. I'm just cueing you in, okay? How many of you men love to serve your bride? All right. How many of you love to see your bride served by others? Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing. All right? It's not a trick question. Can you think how much Jesus loves to see his bride served? You see, and that's the honor in that. Jesus said, if you want to, learn, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then learn to be what? A servant of all. And they serve the body in that way. They're called out from the body, and they're called out for the body. There, there's no mention here in Scripture as it being a, quote-unquote, call of God in their life. But I think it's understood. I'm just being honest with Scripture. You see, sometimes we get this idea of a calling that we have to have it written on the clouds. We have to have a lightning bolt that comes down. But I've learned in the Christian experience where we're living a lifestyle of worship to God. He will let us know of that inkling and that calling to serve in this capacity. And he will affirm it and confirm it through the body by the body of current deacons and by the body of pastoral elder staff in the church. And so I want us to recognize this this morning that what we're going to do tonight in ordaining these three men that have, that we've recognized these things in, they've been vetted very carefully, lots of conversation, observe them very well as best as we can. And we believe that God has confirmed that they are to be appointed to serve here as deacons in our body. And you've affirmed that by your election last week. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.